0: Hey, everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Christopher McKittrick, who's written a book called Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones in New York City. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me, Steve. First off, I got to say that is one great title for this particular book. It's really good. Did you come up with that? Yes,
2: it actually was, believe it or not, the first title I thought of for a couple of reasons. I wanted it to be a line that would be familiar with Stones fans. I didn't want the title to be the name of a song, because I didn't want it to be too closely identified with one particular song, you know, Shattered, The Rolling Stones in New York City. So I wanted to go with a lyric that a Stones fan would know, but not directly a title of a song. And when I started working on this project... I thought of it actually as uh, just a lengthy magazine article, and that was the title. It was always going to be Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue.
0: It's really good. You know, for our listeners, basically Chris tracks the relationship between the Stones and New York City through their entire career, pretty much from start till up until just a week or two ago. I have to ask, though, were there other contenders for the book title?
2: It always stuck, and my agent was happy with it. The publisher that eventually picked up the book was happy with it. So we just we just ran with it.
0: Well, I think it's perfect. Thank you. So like many of the bands that came through New York, and particularly overseas bands, the first New York connection to America at large was usually the Ed Sullivan show. Correct. And The Stones debuted there in 1964. They played there quite a number of times, but by all accounts, uh, Mr. Sullivan did not appreciate them as much as he did, say, the Beatles. And he told the screaming girls to be quiet and then noticeably rolled his eyes after the band's performance.
2: Yeah, it's really fun to watch those early appearances on The Sullivan Show, especially since it has such an important connection with the Stones breaking their music in America, and, of course, on stages in in New York since The Sullivan Show was filmed, what is now the Ed Sullivan Theater. What I think was really amazing about that first appearance is the very next day in the press, Sullivan announced that because of the, the way that the audience was acting, that the Rolling Stones would never again appear on The Ed Sullivan Show, assuring parents that that sort of behavior is not acceptable on his program. Of course... When the ratings came in, the tune changed. (laughs) And also Bill Wyman actually wrote in one of his books that Sullivan behind the scenes sent them a letter saying, you know, I got a lot of angry calls from parents, a lot of angry letters from parents, but I got twice as many from teenagers that loved you. So while in public, Sullivan was saying that they'll never appear again behind the scenes, he pretty much saw that the stones were hit and that he had to have them back on again.
0: So was Sullivan's negativity, was it aimed at the way that the crowd, especially the girls, were going nuts? Or was it aimed at the long hair and the dress, which was, you know, it wasn't quite where the Stones that we know them are, but it wasn't the Beatles either, right? It's also
2: funny when you watch the progression of the Stones' appearances on Ed Sullivan, how their attire changes. In their first appearance, they don't match like the Beatles did during their early Sullivan appearances, but they're pretty well dressed. Uh, and of course, by their last appearance in 1969, they're wearing whatever the heck they want. Yeah, it was more so the reaction of the crowd or it just seemed to, to cause the issue because, you know, they were screaming like they were screaming for the Beatles, but it was just just as overpowering, if not more.
0: You mentioned the last appearance was in 69, so first is in 64. I think they outdid the Beatles in appearance numbers by a long shot. Do you know how many times they appeared on the show? Um,
2: Just off the top of my head, I believe it was five. It could have been six.
0: Kind of a a once-a-year thing is the way they did it. More or less, yeah. Judging by the timeline. You know, one of the funny things about the Ed Sullivan show, only Jagger was singing live. I thought they were all miming. The band was definitely miming, but the, the singing was done live. Yeah, and actually
2: the first appearance, the band is live. It wasn't until the appearance in 1966 when they played Painted Black, Lady Jane, and Have You Seen Your Mother Baby that they went to the band Miming. And part of that was because, A, those songs have additional instrumentation that the Stones certainly would not have been doing live. And second, because... Brian Jones' hand was injured and he's wearing a cast on his hand. So he's miming when he's playing like the sitar for Paint It Black. What's also interesting, if you watch that particular appearance when they started, the band started miming, is the performance of Lady Jane. Because Lady Jane is a song that doesn't have any bass on the song and doesn't have any drums. So you actually see Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts in the background, hilariously kind of not knowing what to do. (laughs) Charlie Watts is randomly hitting a cymbal at various times because, you know, you had these two members of the band that don't actually appear on the song. So they just seem very perplexed on, on what to do. And I, uh, you know, live television, it's great. But I, I always love that particular appearance. You know, there's so many legendary appearances of the Stones on Sullivan. But that one just cracks me up every time I watch because you just have to watch Charlie Watts and Bill, Bill Wyman.
0: Well, I know that one, and I'm going to have to go back and look at Charlie and Bill, because that that sounds pretty hilarious. Perhaps their most famous appearance was the 67 appearance, which featured Let's Spend the Night Together. Surprised that Ed Sullivan let that one through, but I (laughs) guess there were demands to change the lyric into something more subtle, shall we say?
2: That was such a fun moment to write about in my book. In fact, it's a title of one of the chapters, Let's Spend Some Time Together, which was essentially the story goes that Sullivan, of course, while it was the biggest program on the United States for musicians to appear on, it also came with its sort of censorship issues a legendary story is jim morrison being told he can't say girl we couldn't get much higher when the doors performed light my fire on the show jim morrison did it anyway and they were banned bob dylan of course never actually appeared on the sullivan show despite his great fame because he wanted to play a particular song on his appearance he was told no
0: it was was a political tune right
2: yep uh talking john burt society blues he wanted to perform that song And Sullivan and his producer said, no, we don't want you to play that. So Dylan said, bye, I'm not appearing. So when it came to the Stones, though, they took a different approach. Their new single was Let's Spend the Night Together. Sullivan's team told them that they could not say that lyric. It was obscene. It could not be said to their audience. The legend is that moments before the Stones took the stage, Jagger was told he has to sing this new lyric or they're not going to be able to go on. So Jagger, in his version, goes on the stage and then sort of mumbles, let's spend some together, mumbles the words. And that's what they did just because it was a last minute compromise. In reality, and this is what's so fun about writing a book and and doing research and and sort of separate. Separating fact from fiction. Um, as great of a story as that is, in Jagger's version, in the newspapers the day before, in local New York media, the day before the appearance, it was already announced to parents that the Stones would be changing the lyrics, so it's okay to watch with your children. So this was already reported. The Stones manager talked about it saying, uh, we're not happy about this, but we understand we need to do it uh, to appear on the Selma show. So this was already well known. And on top of that, if you watch the video footage, Jagger definitely does sing, let's spend some time together, although he rolls his eyes as he says it. Of course, this has made the appearance so much more legendary than it would be if he performed the actual lyrics. It's such a well-known story about the band. And it's very early indication that the Stones understood, look, as much as we're rock and roll rebels, you know we understand the, the relationship between art and commerce, and here's just a blow we're going to have to take if we want to get our new single on TV in front of the largest American audience possible. So it's interesting that as time has gone on, Jagger has presented his version of the story where he was a lot you know a lot more against it but clearly it was something that if you watch the footage that that really tells the real story
0: yeah exactly I think in your book he's quoted as saying he did not sing it and clearly yes. clearly he did and the eye rolls yep. are, are definitely legendary I wonder too if ed Sullivan understood that art and commerce thing you know handing it to them at the last minute you know that's a little sketchy but also the doors if they're going to break the rules Sullivan probably understands that it's going to hurt for a moment but it's going to become just a huge part of television or music history and and was willing to take those chances.
2: Yeah, and especially in the instance of The Stones, of course, was not their last appearance. They still appeared on the show. And and, uh, we talked before about the 69 appearance. The 1969 appearance is the only one that was actually shot in CBS's Los Angeles studios because The Stones were recording and couldn't make it to New York and that kind of shows how important the Stones were for Sullivan's ratings because he rarely allowed that to happen and he was willing to let the Stones film an appearance across the country to air instead of having them come in just because that's how important the band was to the show's ratings and how popular they were. Of course, certainly the show and of course the network had their standards that they needed to adhere by but, you know, controversy always creates some commerce out of it so a little bit of controversy Never hurt anybody, I guess,
0: especially in rock and roll. Especially the Stones. One has to wonder if Ed Sullivan was a Mick or Keith guy, though.
2: (laughs) I couldn't tell you. You know, the Keith Richards that we know today, the, the icon he has become, uh, was not quite that guy yet in the mid-60s. You know, he was still sort of finding his own persona. Jagger seems to, right out of his gate, understand who Mick Jagger really was, which is kind of amazing. You know, you watch Jagger today, and he's doing the same moves he did 50 years ago, whereas Richards, I think, took a while to develop his persona. It was a little more quiet in the beginning. So if I had a guess, I would say Sullivan would probably gravitate more towards Richards, this quiet guitarist over there as opposed to this flamboyant jagger
0: although jagger was quite the businessman so
2: oh yes he went to the school of economics that's
0: right so one of my favorite lines in your book comes in reference to an incident at 24th street and lexington avenue can you fill us in on on what that was for and definitely share the line in the in the end
2: yeah and this is just one of those again moments to create controversy the stones for the single of have you seen your mother baby sending in the shadow took for the back part of the sleeve a picture of all five band members dressed as women and it wasn't typical women's fashion of the 1960s they were dressed like you know grandmothers would dress in the 1960s and it's just a hilarious picture because you have to do a double take at first cuz at first you're like wow those are five hideous women and then you go oh oh wait it's the rolling stones circa 1966 And what's legendary about that moment, what has come out, and Bill Wyman wrote about in his book, that immediately after they took the photo on a street corner in New York, they went around the corner to a bar and all got drinks, dressed as what I wrote in my book as surely the five ugliest women (laughs) in the joint, which I think is is hilarious because, you know, it's certainly something that uh, in the 1960s probably didn't happen as often, even in New York City.
0: Well, certainly that cover pushes the envelope. You know, one thing, if if folks don't know it, uh, it was a black and white cover, correct?
2: Yes. Someone uh, once presented as they look like World War I war widows, exactly. uh, which I think is kind of a, a good way to put it at that
0: time. It's an interesting photograph. I would uh, urge all our listeners to go and, and check it out. You know, you eventually, by process of elimination, find out who's who. So an entry point for me, or at least uh, folks my age, comes when the world's greatest rock and roll band meets one of the most iconic stadiums in the world. And then you get one of the great live albums of all time and get your ya-ya's out.
2: Yeah, and that's a big focus in my book. I, there was one of the my favorite times to write about because this was really the, the time when the Stones were ready to conquer the world. You know, and of course, you know, being that we're quickly coming up to the 50th anniversary of sort of the 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 big problem of 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 that time when Stones played Altamon over in uh, in California. On the other side of that was this triumph of their shows which were later recorded for Get Your Yayas out at Madison Square Garden, um, which became such a major part of Stones history. Uh, they, they have a long history with Madison Square Garden. This is really where it begins. This was sort of one of the first concert tours that became sort of a cultural event. Because if you look back, one thing a lot of people don't quite realize about a lot of 60s concert tours is that by tours, they were really like 20, 30 minute shows, more like sets. Um, A lot of the very early Stone shows are are 30 minutes long, if that, maybe 25 minutes because uh, the, (laughs) the crowd got too wild and they had to leave the stage. This is really when the Stones were going out and playing full sets of music. Mick Taylor is now a member of the band and just bringing their sound to a whole nother level. It was just an extraordinary series of events. It really kind of culminated at those Madison Square Garden shows that were also documented partially in the uh, documentary Gimme Shelter.
0: Yeah, that was an incredible band, and, and that record still remains touched touchstone of their catalog. But you mentioned such an interesting thing in that the shows were only 30 minutes and they weren't these stadium shows. And, you know, the Stones would become one of those bands to reset the table in terms of the outdoor stadiums.
2: Yeah, correct. And really, and another one of my favorite parts to write about was the 1989 Steel Wheels tour, because that really reinvented the stadium tour model. Not that the Stones hadn't played stadiums before, and certainly bands like Led Zeppelin had played stadiums in the 70s, but it really was that 89 tour that totally reinvented how pop musicians do stadium tours. And, you know, you look at bands like Metallica, U2, even Taylor Swift, Beyonce and Jay-Z, who do these stadium tours now, and they're still doing the tricks that the Rolling Stones created in 1989 on that Steel Wheels tour.
0: They also may have invented or took advantage maybe of New York City when announcing their tours through the years. They came up with some pretty crazy schemes and utilized some pretty crazy locations and how they got into those locations. Can you give us a couple of those stories?
2: One thing that inspired me to write this book is I wanted to know the connection between every time the Stones seemed to have a major tour to announce from roughly 1975 to 2005, they did it in New York City with some sort of publicity event that would get all cameras on them. My, my personal favorite is in 1975, when they were announcing the Tour of the Americas, they set up a press conference at a hotel, And instead of showing up at the press conference, they rolled past on a flatbed truck playing brown sugar and tossing out flyers with all the tour dates to the fans. Uh, The interviewers that were waiting at this press conference are running out trying to get a quote from them on the truck, which isn't happening because they're just playing for the fans, which the whole idea was inspired from Charlie Watts, you know, being such a student of jazz. Knowing that, especially in New Orleans, you'll see jazz bands riding on a pickup truck playing a few songs trying to drum up interests for an upcoming show. So that was one of the really the first time they did something like that. For the 89 tour, the Steel Wheels tour, they took an antique railroad car to Grand Central Terminal and uh, held a press conference for the 94 voodoo lounge tour they showed up on a presidential yacht at chelsea piers right uh uh, 97 which is another one of my favorites for bridges to babylon they rolled across the brooklyn bridge in a vintage cadillac then there's the uh landing a blimp in the bronx the giant tongue logo which is probably the most elaborate of all of them because i can't imagine how much that blimp cost uh, so those are some of the, the major times that they did these big media moments, which they would always follow with the press conference in which they answered almost no questions. It was kind of hilarious to kind of look back at the media coverage of those events because you would always have these annoyed journalists saying, well, the Stones did another press conference. Yet again, they didn't answer any questions. But of course, the questions always seem to run like, is this the last tour? How much are tickets? Who's opening? Yeah, all the same questions every year. Uh, and Jagger always would point out, you know, you guys have been asking us if this is the last tour since 1969. You could stop asking that.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially today. It's interesting because you think only in New York, the things you mentioned, you know, a presidential yacht, a blimp, a train car. I think Wood at some point said next it will be a submarine. Yeah. I don't think that that's happened. No, that, it didn't not. happen this year. So I think we probably won't see the submarine <laughs> So around this point, most of the band, I would guess Mick and Keith, they moved to New York City and they start to immerse themselves in the city. Let's talk a little bit about the culture of New York and how that kind of infiltrated them. I think the legend is that Mick would be out with the celebrities and Studio 54 and then Keith would be more in the clubs or the bars sitting in with other musicians. Is that fair?
2: usually gets this idea that, especially when you get to the late 70s and the Stones Incorporated in some of their music, some more disco sounds, that Mick was the one pushing the disco and Keith was the one pushing the rock and roll. But it, it just like everything, it was kind of a combination of the two. I mean, Keith Richards spent a lot of time at Studio 54. Uh, in fact, he met his future wife there. And you'll see a lot of pictures out there and amazing pictures of, of Keith Richards hanging out with guys like James Brown and John Belushi at Studio 54. So he was there quite often. And on the same, on the same line, Jagger was also jumping on stages throughout the city, playing songs and smaller clubs when there was a great musician on stage. So it was a little mix of the both. Certainly Jagger's is known more for traveling in celebrity circles than Richards is, but Richards had his own group of celebrities that he liked to hang out with. A lot of the Saturday Night Live original crew there were a couple of his favorites that he'd like to be in touch with. So, uh, so, so yes and no.
0: Yeah, they were the teetotalers, right? Like Ackroyd and Belushi. Yeah, yeah. Kept Keith in line. Yeah, of course. One of the most famous New York-based artists was Andy Warhol, which people probably know, but he did the cover for Sticky Fingers in 71. Correct. And that with the zipper and the jeans, you know, zip it and the underwears underneath. The, the photo shoot took place, I think, at 33 Union Square West, which I think was the housed both Interview Magazine's office, which Andy Warhol started, as well as the factory. Is that right? Correct. Can you put to rest any of the rumors I heard growing up that was always Jagger on that cover? (laughs) And it's a great story. But in your book, I think you break down or or a couple of models said, no, 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 that wasn't him. That it was me.
2: Well, one thing for sure, it's definitely not Jagger. On the cover, but there were a couple of models that Warhol used for that photo, and of course, many of those models have said, "Oh, it's me! It's definitely me! I can tell it's me." But there's no sure way of telling who exactly it was. None of the photos that have survived from that photo shoot identify exactly who was there, except for the fact that it was not Jagger because he wasn't at the photo shoot.
0: I doubt it was Charlie either. I'm just gonna. <laughs> no, it was that. none of the yeah. Stone. <laughs> And then, so uh, surprisingly, I guess, Warhol would again design a Stones album, and that, that would be Love You Live, with I think it was 75, 76, something like that, and a criminally underrated record, it made a fantastic billboard and, and a great fold-out cover, and do you know how that came about?
2: You know, it was really getting to the point where it had been almost 10 years since they did their last live album or their last official live album. This was also their final album that was part of their contract with Warner Music. And like a lot of artists have done ever since, it's sort of recording a a live album or a compilation album with a few new songs to kind of do that last album on your record contract. So that's part of the reason why I think it hasn't gotten all the attention it deserved. Also because I think simply it's not Yaya's, which was such a such a major entry point for Rolling Stones fans. So it doesn't quite get the love that it really deserves because it does have a lot of great tunes on it that aren't on Get Your Yaya's Out.
0: Yeah, that Elma combo side, the club side is brilliant, though. It's just amazing. You know, we talked a little bit about Mick and Keith in New York City. You know, one of the members who to me was truest to form of kind of the New York thing was Charlie Watts in yeah. Quintet in the halls that he played, it was very much a nod to kind of the, the jazz era, wasn't
2: it? Here's one of the things that I got asked a lot. Book, They go, oh, you know, of, of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, who do you think was uh, was more excited about New York City when they first arrived? And I, I have to correct them and say, actually, it was Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts is a student of the jazz. You know, he's one of the greatest rock and roll drummers of all time. But he, at his heart, is a jazz musician. So of all the Stones, when they first arrived in New York City, he was the most excited because he finally could go to some of these jazz clubs that he had only heard about over in England. And that has been such a big part of his work, especially in in the 80s, more so in the 90s. Charlie Watts has had various bands that he's been a part of. Those bands have played uh, Blue Note Jazz Club, Lincoln Center, the Iridium Jazz Club. So he's played a lot of smaller halls in New York City with his various jazz groups. And on top of that, it's not uncommon when he does this to see Keith Richards in the crowd. Since Richards lives in Connecticut, he's swung by and has seen Charlie play a few times, which is always a thrill for the crowd as well.
0: Yeah, it seems they all worship Charlie's. We're speaking with Christopher McKittrick, who's the author of a book called Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones in New York City. The Stones would also name check New York City in their songs more as time went on. Pretty interestingly, they kind of broke their model, I think, a little bit. And there were some things that I was really surprised to learn in your book. Uh, in Goat's Head Soup, Heartbreaker, I think that opens the record. That references the shooting of a young boy, which was a true story in New York, right? Yeah. In April
2: 1973, uh, a young African-American boy, only, only 10 years old, Clifford Glover, was, was shot and killed by police. He was walking with his father and was a suspect in a robbery. The police at the time said that they thought he saw him carrying a gun, and he was sh- shot and killed. Shot in the back. Yes, it wasn't? shot in the back. And the Rolling Stones ended up mentioning that in the song Heartbreaker. And it's very interesting because the Stones, even throughout their history, their whole history, have very rarely made specific social issues mentioned in their songs. I mean, there's certainly some songs like Blinded by Rainbows and maybe more controversially controversially uh, sweet neocon off the A Bigger Bang album, their most recent original studio album. But this was one of the first instances of it. And of course, a, it's a tragic New York story that made its way and inspired that lyric in the song.
0: Yeah, and anybody who knows that song, self-included here, you know, I can sing along to those lyrics. And it never really struck me that perhaps it was a true story. And it was very interesting to read that. And, and it was uncommon for the Stones to go there. But sometimes in New York, it seems... You know, maybe New York pulled that out of them. Uh, black and Blue's Hot Stuff, you know, which was 75 and New York was in bad shape. And Jagger famously sings, all you people in New York City, I know you're going broke.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was the mid 70s, early 80s, you know, is, is when we typically think of New York City kind of hitting the skids here. And everyone across the United States and probably all over the world were well aware of pictures of just piles of garbage in New York City and outrageous crime reports like what just happened, uh, what we just discussed with Clifford Glover. But you know, there's a lot of factors, social and political, that went into sort of the decline of New York City at that time. I mean, certainly more New York City in tune artists like the Ramones. Mentioned many many social issues in New York City in their songs, along with you know sort of the the sillier but fun Ramon songs. The Stones in this case were doing it as well.
0: Yeah, and on a different economic level as well as being Londoners, as yeah, it's just interesting. In Some Girls, nineteen seventy eight, I think that might be their most New York associated record. Miss You is clearly a you know, reflection on the phenomenon of the Studio 54 disco that we talked about. You know, Mick was there a lot. And, of course, he sings He Went Walking in Central Park, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, not something you'd want to do typically after dark, especially in 1978 when the song was released.
0: And Shattered on that record is clearly, clearly punk rock inspired. And it also gave your book its name. Correct. And Seventh Avenue, that's the heart of the fashion district in New York, right? Yes, and Mick sings in that song, people dressed in plastic bags, directing traffic, some kind of fashion. I mean, ouch.
2: I am two minds of that lyric when I also think about some of the outrageous fashions that were happening in the 1970s, you know, that's not a uh, surprising, but of course, you know, New York is also more so in 1970 than even today, just a uh, lot of homelessness in the city. And it's still not uncommon, unfortunately, to see people dressed in plastic bags, walking around, even on fashion Avenue.
0: Right. I see. I know I took it to mean perhaps, you know, the crazy fashion designers doing something, you know, outrageous. And it didn't hit me that, You know, it's the homeless. But then, you know, there's the infamous line. Go ahead. Bite the big apple. Don't mind the maggots. How did New York City take that?
2: Uh, Well, frankly, I'm I'm pretty sure New York City residents were well aware of the decline of the city at the time. And I don't think that line would have surprised them at all.
0: Not surprised them, but I, I can't imagine anybody liking that.
2: Certainly enough time has passed that anyone who might have been offended by it, the wounds have healed. But there was a, a much more controversial song on the album that I think took a lot more of the heat, and that's the, the title track, Some Girls, which has a, uh, a breakdown of all of Jagger singing about women of various nationalities and ethnic backgrounds and what they want from him as a rich rock star and uh, says a few things that were uh, very offensive to some of the people in those uh, racial and ethnic groups or nationalities. Sort of makes the song not one that they perform very often these days, but uh, I mean, the song's got a great groove, so.
0: It's a great song, and I'm sure people know what you're talking about, and you, you did a very good <laughs> job there uh, breaking it down without getting into the uh, the stuff that would get us in trouble. <laughs> We have to mention the unfortunate performance of Shattered on Saturday Night Live, and that's just yuck that's the one where famously Jagger gets in front of Wood is that right I almost feel like an entire
2: book could be written about the Stones on Saturday Night Live it's the only time that the band has performed on Saturday Night Live uh, Jagger has appeared several times on the show uh, has become one of the kind of really great guests of the, in the show's history but uh, this was the first time and the only time that the Stones themselves appeared they were in a very unique position at the time both the guest hosts and the musical guest, which rarely happened in those days. The program also featured an appearance by New York's famous Ed Koch, which I also think is kind of funny, because he came out and did the monologue even though he wasn't the host. So that even gives it even more New York flavor. What's sort of legendary about this appearance is, first of all, the Stones appeared in skits, Richards actually had a drop out of one skit that he was scheduled to be in because he was just too hammered. That, of course, influenced their performance. Um, Jagger claims that they overly rehearsed the day before, and uh, which is why his voice is just shot very, very hoarse. That, of course, could also be because of the partying that was going on backstage with the not ready for primetime players and the Rolling Stones, which I can't imagine how wild that party got. And uh, yeah, it's a performance that it's not one of the Stones' best, especially in Shattered. It seems like Richards in particular has no idea what he's playing, but uh, you know, on the other hand, it's rock and roll. This is the, the Stones kind of at their sloppiest, which uh, I could, st- which still blows off a lot of other bands. You know, I think towards the end of the song too, the camera just totally focuses on Jagger and just squeezes out whatever Richards and Wyman uh, are doing. So it is, it is quite a sloppy performance.
0: Well, speaking of sloppy, I think Wood was surprised by Jagger licking his oh, face. Oh, yes, and
2: Jagger. That, you know,
0: yeah. That, that was shocking.
2: And again, controversy creating uh, interest in the group's music. Jagger licking Wood's face toward, sort of in the middle of the song, kind of out of nowhere. And you, you kinda, do kind of see a reaction from Wood, like, where did that come from?
0: Well, Waiting on a Friend uh, off the next album, Tattoo You, is kind of a low-key wonderful thing, in my opinion. I learned two things about that video from your book. You can fill them in, but one is the location of the steps at the beginning, and that has a very special place in rock and roll history. And you also identify one of the three folks who's sitting with Mick on the steps in the very beginning.
2: Yeah, so the building is famous for two rock and roll touchstones. Number one, the building pictured on the cover of Led Zeppelin's physical graffiti album. And then later was the building used in the Waiting on a Friend video. And one of the men that's at the beginning of the video is actually reggae musician, reggae superstar Peter Tosh who a few years earlier had done a duet with Jagger on a single uh, Don't Look Back, uh, a cover of the great Temptation song. And uh, he actually opened up for the Stones on a few shows during that Some Girls tour. You know, I guess he was in New York City, didn't have anything else to do that day and came on down and joined in on the video shoot.
0: That song was originally born from Goat's Soup in 1972, which was recorded in Jamaica.
2: Yes. And what's so that's what's really kind of interesting about the Tattoo You album, because it's one of the Stones' really great sort of later period albums. And it's actually made up of a lot of older songs that they had kind of sitting around in the vaults. One of them being Waiting on a Friend, which actually features Mick Taylor playing guitar on the song, even though he had been out of the band for years at that point. And on the other hand... You have Start Me Up, which is another song that was kind of laying around, waiting to be finished. And, of course, it's become one of the Stones' most famous tracks. And so here's just kind of shows you the the greatness of the Rolling Stones. A song that was an unfinished demo, sitting, collecting dust, somehow becomes one of the the band's greatest hits. Because Jagger and Richards are just such a great songwriting partnership.
0: You know, it's interesting around this era how much music video and MTV took over uh 1997 there's a video from Anybody Seen My Baby from the Record Bridges to Babylon and there's a ton of New York City in that you know you've got a very famous actress is the object of Jagger's desire and he's chasing her around the city and on the subway and then there's Keith playing guitar on a skyscraper
2: yeah well first of all the actress that Jagger's chasing is Angelina Jolie and, uh, you know, this is one of her very, very first appearances on screen. And, of course, Jagger and Jolie were re- linked in the press afterwards. I-, I don't have much to say about that. But, you know, it certainly didn't hurt the-, the publicity for the video. And, yes, in the video, Richards is perched on a gargoyle, playing guitar and sort of lounging around uh, with this gorgeous backdrop of the New York City skyline. What I kind of find very interesting is Again, one of the great things about writing a book is debunking misremembered or misreported stories that are out there. I've seen it said several times that this was filmed with Keith Richards standing on a gargoyle uh, on the Chrysler building, which, A, I would find very, very shocking if insurance would ever let Keith Richards stand on top of a gargoyle hundreds of feet above a street in Manhattan. And number two, if you look at the gargoyles, they don't look anything like the ones on the Chrysler building. In fact, the gargoyle in the video has a very, very pronounced tongue much like the Rolling Stones' tongue logo. The scene was, was likely shot in a New York City studio with just a set piece that Richards was standing on and a backdrop of New York City with some steam being pumped up to kind of give it that atmosphere. But regardless, it's a beautiful shot and it's a great shot in the video.
0: Well, it's funny because here we are now, summer 2019, and the more things change, the more they stay the same. Stones are on tour again. You know, they had a bit of a stop and start issue, but they're about to finish up their tour. They did not have any kind of submarine uh, entrance to this tour. Is that
2: right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's correct.
0: And that's mostly because you mentioned social media. It's just more effective.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, when the Stones were doing these big publicity stunts to launch their tours, uh, you know, they're doing it in New York City, the media capital of the world. It ensured that there would always be a crowd of photographers, reporters, photojournalists, all media personnel would be there. Nowadays, eh, you have access to billions of people on social media if you just post quick video saying, hey, we're going on tour. You know, so I guess uh, on one hand, it's sort of unfortunate that we don't see the, these fun publicity stunts as much anymore. But on the other hand, I, I totally understand it from a, uh, a business and, and media perspective that this is the way to get the word out now, putting it out on, on a video on social media saying, hey, guys, we're going on tour. Dates are on our website. And plus, you know, of course, the Stones, uh, we don't like to think this. They are getting older. So uh, it's sort of sort of organizing a giant media event uh, is a little bit more difficult than shooting a video in the rehearsal space
0: still got to wonder if it doesn't tear it uh, Jagger the performer versus Jagger the businessman you know it's just a, a totally different model these days and one that they've invented really so did you see any of the shows on this tour yes
2: i actually got, got a chance to check out the Pasadena show at the Rose Bowl which was of course phenomenal because i'm out here in LA it was their first time playing the Rose Bowl since the Voodoo Lounge tour which is kind of incredible when you think about it because it's such a huge iconic venue So it was nice to see the Stones tackle that again and uh, made a little bit of headlines because Robert Downey Jr. came out and introduced the band, which was kind of cool because he's certainly a popular guy these days with all of his appearances in the Marvel movies. And he made a very special announcement about a rock on Mars being named after the Rolling Stones, which was (laughs) kind of crazy because I don't believe any other rock band has a rock named after them on another planet. I don't even know if even David Bowie has a rock named after him on another planet. So... Very cool to, to kind of hear that. You know, they're, they're fantastic, and it's great that they're still doing what they're doing.
0: We're speaking with Christopher McKittrick, who's the author of a book called Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones in New York City. If you like The Rolling Stones, if you dig New York City, you'll love this book. There's a lot of really interesting connections. I'd like to leave the last words to Keith from the concert for New York City in 2001 in memory of the victims of 9-11. He said it just so perfectly, and so, Keith, you care to do the honors?
2: Yeah. You know, the prologue of my book opens with that September uh, 11th Memorial uh, Concert for New York City. And it was so important to me as a native New Yorker to use this as the opening of the book, because even though this isn't a Rolling Stones moment, it's actually a Mick and Keith moment because they were the only ones at the concert. It was so important to me because here are two musicians from across the pond who developed this just really close connection, really close love for New York City and everything about it. You know, here of them, um celebrating the city at one of the most tragic moments in its recent history. And, uh, you know, Keith Richards is the ultimate rock and roll survivor. There's jokes about how and everyone knows them that, you know, long after the rest of us are gone, Keith Richards will still be playing guitar. Um, and uh, Keith Richards stepped up to the microphone in just the most Keith Richards way possible, says he said, New York, how you doing, guys? You know, I got a feeling this town's going to make it. And I just thought that was just such a great emotional moment that didn't go overboard, that just sort of said the thing the way Keith Richards would send the message best.
0: Definitely. And New Yorkers are tough. Keith's tough. Your book is not a tough book to read, <laughs> so I'd recommend everyone to go out there and check it out. And thanks for spending some time with us today, Chris. Thank you so much, Steve. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, and all-music Books podcast.